What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. It's time for Deep Trouble and Mark Halloran's in the studio with me once again. It's going to be a very interesting and a very dark Mark tonight. Rachel Menzies is the subject of your interview. Rachel Menzies has got an honours degree in psychology at University of Sydney and she won the Dick Thompson Thesis Prize for a work on death anxiety and its relationship with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. But the remarkable thing, I think, Mark, that will come out in this interview is the relationship between her work and that of her father's. She's really following in her father's footsteps. I had assumed that myself, but it sounds like it was a little bit more like a synthesis or something that Early on the interview, she had said that as an adolescent, she had become interested in all things morbid. And then when she had started conversations with her father, who's a professor in psychology, he had started to see perhaps the importance of death and death anxiety as a basis for lots of psychopathology. So, yeah, she's written extensively on the causes of various disorders Mm. and uh, editor of a book, Curing the Dread of Death, Theory Research Practice. And she's just released her second book, Tales from the Valley of Death, Mm. Reflections from Psychotherapy on the Fear of Death. Now, I think one of the interesting things, Mark, is this text message she gets every day, five times. Uh, No, I've just read about it in the Sydney Morning Herald. Apparently, it is simply a reminder that she is going to die. (laughs) Well, there's a meme going around social media at the moment, which points out the subtle difference between someone saying to you, have a nice day, and someone saying, enjoy your next 24 hours. Right. That does sound a little ominous. There you go. I'd love to know what that text message says. All right. Okay. Anything you want to warn people about before we play this interview? Oh, there are themes within this interview that some people may find disturbing. Exactly. And if they find it disturbing, what can they do? Well, I'm sure that there are various helplines out there that you can reach out for professional help. All right. It's a very interesting interview. You're going to get a lot out of it. So let's have a listen to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Rachel Menzies. I've read that you receive a text message at least five times a day, which reminds you of your own eventual demise. And I was just wondering why someone who's a young woman would be so fascinated with their own death. I think it's important to keep in mind that it's going to happen, really. I can think of at least a couple of times when I've been kind of going about my day, maybe kind of caught up in one sort of stressful situation or another. And then receiving that kind of text message actually puts things in a little bit of perspective. So I guess in kind of broad terms, I think reminding ourselves of our own death can actually help and remind ourselves that maybe that particular meeting or deadline we're worried about isn't the be all and end all. 
I understand that your father is Professor Ross Menzies. Uh, he is, his research, his field of research is also uh, death anxiety. Um, so mm-hmm. I wondered whether death or the interest in death was to some extent a, a family affair. I mean, it's definitely become a family affair. I don't know if it started out that way. I think I've had a bit of a morbid fascination as a teenager with anything that was kind of, you know, a bit sort of out there or or taboo. And I think I was just interested in it because it seemed like the one kind of guaranteed part of life that's something that people sort of shy away from talking about. And then my dad, Ross, and I were talking about it more and more as I studied psychology more and more and we started to think about its relevance to psychology and mental health in particular. So I think it was always something I was kind of personally fascinated by. Um, and then obviously over the last few years, it's, it's formed more of a kind of career focus for me. Mm. You focused on it as uh, the term is a transdiagnostic construct. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, of course. So a transdiagnostic construct is anything really in mental health, any kind of construct that seems to either pop up across different disorders or something that seems to play a causal role, so something that seems to actually drive and contribute to um, different mental health conditions. So something like um, perfectionism would be an example of one transdiagnostic construct. We know that perfectionism plays a role in lots of different mental health problems. And so death anxiety is this particularly interesting one, in my opinion at least, because it's, it's been sort of talked about here and there in the literature for decades, but no one until recently has started to argue that it actually is one of these central underlying factors that might be contributing to all of these different disorders. Um, And the thing that makes transdiagnostic constructs so interesting to psychologists is that what that means is that if we can target this common denominator across these different conditions, it's likely to stop people kind of cycling almost from disorder to disorder. So at the moment, what we know from the data and what you tend to see clinically is that it's not uncommon for someone to have, you know, one disorder in childhood to get treated for that, but then years down the track in adolescence or in adulthood to develop a different disorder. And so if we know that there are these transdiagnostic constructs that seem to play a role in all of those different disorders they've had, then treating that one construct might stop this person needing to return to treatment years later with a different disorder. Mm. So death anxiety sits as some sort of causal construct, the fear of death or the, what, what's it called, existential terror, the, the realisation mm. that I'm mortal and that eventually I won't be here anymore. Yeah, that's right. And so, so far there's a lot of research showing that at least death anxiety seems to be associated with many different conditions. So it seems like the higher your death anxiety is, the worse someone's social anxiety is, the worse their OCD is, the worse their depression is and so on. But in the last couple of years, we've got a few more studies showing that not only is it related to these disorders, but it seems to be actually causing them and driving them. And there's still a lot we need to know about it, but it seems like for at least four or five different disorders, death anxiety seems to actually be causing them, at least to some extent. Well, I suppose the most obvious one at the moment, considering that we're in the middle of the the COVID-19 pandemic, is that possibly OCD will increase and and fear of germs and uh, sanitising your hands. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the kind of general public are seeing this at the moment, that people's concerns about the possible outcome of COVID is leading everyone to be more anxious. And of course, some of that behaviour in terms of hand washing so on is helpful and adaptive and it's what the government are recommending. Mm. But for some people, it's going to be that more extreme end of the spectrum where they're taking things kind of above and beyond the actual standard medical advice for handling something like the coronavirus. What's your own personal experience of death? Um, probably pretty similar to everyone else's, I would think. I've experienced losses no more so than anyone else, I would say. It's really just something that I think I tend to reflect on probably more than the average person. It seemed to me there are kind of uh, therapeutic techniques that your father and, and I think you suggest as well, which is which I found interesting because I'm interested in meditation, but a bit of corpse meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of those techniques? Because it seems like all of those techniques seem to be about finding someone with a high level of anxiety, connecting it to their anxiety about their death. And then we know that from, you know, at least from the 1950s, from behaviorism and behavioral functionalism, that exposure therapy is one of the most powerful components of any therapeutic technique. So what are some of the things that you do when you find somebody that's really has, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, social phobia, and you feel as though, or you, through therapy, you discover that it's really strongly linked to their fear of death. How do you treat that? So like you mentioned, exposure therapy is the most effective evidence-based treatment for anxiety. So the main aim of exposure therapy is figuring out what the person tends to avoid and essentially getting them to do the opposite of that. So if someone has a fear of heights, their urge is to avoid to back away from heights. And so exposure therapy is about in a graded systematic way, getting them to slowly conquer that fear and face that fear. And so with death anxiety, it's really the same kind of principle that typically people who tend to be anxious about death tend to be avoiding things to do with death. This could be sort of subtle things. It could be if someone brings up death in conversation, changing the topic, for example. It could be changing channels on the TV when the news mentions some new terrorist attack or some new, you know, natural disaster or something like that. Could also be more extreme forms of avoidance where maybe you're avoiding hospitals or going to the doctor because that's a reminder of death. And so the idea is trying to pinpoint what are the specific things people tend to be avoiding and then getting them to do the opposite. So you mentioned the corpse meditation. So Mm -hmm. the corpse meditation, for those who aren't familiar with it, is it comes from a Buddhist practice, like you mentioned. And the idea is to really try and visualize and imagine your own corpse decaying. Now, that might give you a cringe or discomfort even just to kind of hear that said, because it's obviously a an image that we would tend to push away if we started to think about it usually. But the idea is trying to kind of cultivate an acceptance of death rather than avoidance of of anything to do with it. So it could be anything. It could be watching watching movies with themes of death or themes of impermanence. It could be imagining your own funeral, writing your own eulogy. Those kind of tasks have been done in in other therapies outside of cognitive behavior therapy. Anything that really gets the person doing the opposite of their current go-to coping strategy, which tends to be avoiding the feared thing, in this case, death. Mm. Well, uh, I thought about it because, I mean, to some extent, our society is sanitised from death. So we, we, death is something that's essentially hidden. 
Yeah. Um, and I remember uh, spending time in India and going to Varanasi and had a hotel beside the Sindhya Ghats, which are the burning Ghats. And so every night when I returned, I had to walk through the burning Ghats. Um, and I'd mm. seen dead bodies before, uh, family members um, in funeral homes, but getting up in the morning and seeing someone wash their dead grandfather in the Ganges was, uh, well, you, you can't avoid that reality. Uh, in a society where death is part of the fabric of the society itself. I wonder if we've missed something because we have shielded ourselves so much from death. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think in Western society, death is something that happens in hospitals or in nursing homes. It's not something that tends to happen in our kind of day-to-day life or our environment, which is quite different to how it was in Western societies you know, 100 years ago, where it was the family's responsibility to care for the dying, to wash the body of the deceased and so on. And I agree with you. I think there's obvious benefits to having things like modern medicine and so on that mean death is sort of taken care of in that way, prevented. But I think we do lose something from having death seen as a completely separate part of day-to-day life. Well, I think to some extent we see it as unnatural. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even things like the the placement of graveyards, you know, that's something that's changed a lot over time. It used to be you would walk past a graveyard, they would be in every kind of church or, you know, the environment of every church. And now, I mean, we've got places like Rookwood in Sydney, which I think has its own postcard. It's, It's this sort of out of, it's its own suburb, basically, where we push the dead out into a, a separate area. We don't, we don't tend to have them, you know, in our living environment like we used to. Well, the reminder is anxiety-provoking as you research. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I think, I think that, you know, not having that kind of constant reminder or at least occasional reminder, I think often does more harm than good for people. It feels like the, the reflection upon death, you feel as though it improves your quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me personally, it does. And I think for other people, it tends to as well, that it's hard to to get caught up in the little parts of life when you've got that ever-present reminder that this is all going to end. So, you know, why not enjoy it while it lasts? You're listening to The Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with the psychologist Rachel Menzies. One of the issues that I had was that I thought because it had been almost reified as a trans-diagnostic construct, I began to wonder whether a theory that kind of explained everything explained nothing. You know, death is terrifying, probably, because it's unknown and human beings are, well, fear is a powerful motivator. And one of the most powerful motivators is fear of the unknown and death remains a great unknown. That's why there's so many cultural and spiritual traditions which attempt to explain what happens, you know, after death. I think you can find conditions, obsessive compulsive disorder, that I would link to other things like identity and and ego dystonic thought. Ego dystonic means alien, uh, for people who don't know that, alien to oneself. And so the thought is so abhorrent that the person it changes the way that they think about themselves and creates tremendous amounts of anxiety. So one might be, I could be a sex offender against children, a pedophile. That comes into someone's head one day and they've obviously got other mental health issues as well, usually, and it drives their behaviour so much because they believe to have the very thought 
means that there's something inherently wrong about them and it drives their anxiety and their behaviour. And I wondered whether how that would fit into the framework of death anxiety. Yeah, so, I mean, I think you're right. I don't think death anxiety explains every single mental health condition. And I think OCD is a good example of that, where I think most presentations of OCD, there's quite a direct link to death. So if you think of, obviously, washing your hands to prevent something like covid or checking the stovetop, checking you've turned that off to prevent fire and so on. Some of the kind of obsessional thoughts people have do, I think, again, link to death. So things like I might have an image of, I might be standing on top of a cliff and have an image of myself throwing myself off. There's obviously a death link there. But you're right, particularly with those sexuality-related obsessions, Mm. there's often not a direct link to death at all. And I think you're right, other kind of existential concerns about identity and those kind of things, I think, are probably more relevant to those presentations. So I was also interested in where death anxiety fitted within the framework of of something called terror management theory. Mm -hmm. So terror management theory is uh, a theory from social psychology. And essentially, it argues that humans are so terrified of death that this terror kind of invades all of our day-to-day behaviours and that the only way we can protect ourselves from the the terror of death is through creating kind of defence mechanisms. So things like buying into what they call a cultural worldview, which is really the kind of ideas and values and belief systems of our culture. So this could be religious beliefs, like a belief in an afterlife. It could be things like nationalism. It could be voting for a particular political party. So according to people in terror management theory, we kind of buy into our cultural belief systems because we have a sense that we can live on through something greater than ourselves. Mm. So I as an individual might die, but I know that my culture is likely to live on for a long time after me. The other defence mechanism they suggest is self-esteem. So the idea is that if I can kind of tick the boxes of my cultural worldview, I'll feel good about myself as an individual and I'll have a sense that I'm going to live a meaningful life and that I'm going to be remembered after I die. So if my cultural worldview is all about academic success, for instance, if that's something my culture praises and rewards, then every time I publish a paper, do a new study, give a talk, all of those things boost my self-esteem and I feel like, yep, I'm contributing to my culture, people are going to reward and remember me for this. So those are the two of the three really defence mechanisms they've proposed. And we see from hundreds of studies that reminders of death drive people's behaviours in really kind of wacky ways you might not necessarily expect. So when you're reminded of death, for instance, they found you tend to spend more money on products, influences things like driving behaviour, sun tanning behaviour, all these really kind of different aspects of human behaviour seem to be related to an underlying fear of death. So they show this in the lab by reminding one group or one condition gets reminded of death. They just get asked to write a few sentences about their own death. The other group get a different topic and then they just measure their behaviour. So we can see kind of experimentally some of these effects of terror management theory being shown. The conditions which they use are one, well, either mortality, salience or control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess how would you define mortality salience? Yeah, it's a good question. So a mortality salience condition is really any situation where death is made salient to you in some form, so where you're made to think of death. So the most common way and what we've done in our studies is you just ask people two really brief questions, 
So you ask them, what emotions does the thought of death bring up in you and what do you think will physically happen to you when you die? So that's the most common question. And usually those questions are buried in packs of 10 other questionnaires, but we still see these effects. But they've done really interesting mortality salient things. So some of them, they do the study outside of a cemetery. So for one group, they do the study outside of a cemetery. For another group, they do it in some... Even things like having a crucifix on the wall of the experimental room has been used as a mortality salience prime. So even a kind of religious image of death seems to lead to these same effects. So they have some kind of creative ways of of doing it, but I've stuck to the boring, (laughs) write us a little mini essay on (laughs) how death makes you feel. Well, I suppose it explains why people drink at um, wakes and funerals. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure it does, yeah. We know that women have higher rates of generalised anxiety, are more susceptible Mm -hmm. to anxiety. Why do you think women have a greater susceptibility to death anxiety? Women live longer, healthier, men are more likely to die and, uh, you know, from especially adversive circumstances. Personally, I think probably it's just because of that general finding that women tend to report more anxiety in general. To me, it's sort of they're probably explained by the same thing. And whether that's because of socialisation and women being more comfortable reporting more anxiety, whether that's because of actual kind of biological differences or women, you know, being predisposed to anxiety, I'm not sure why, but I think probably it's that same underlying reason for both. What I find interesting, though, is that there's a kind of recently popular what's known as a death positive, the death positive movement. I'm not sure if if you've heard of it, but essentially it's this movement trying to kind of make death less taboo and make people talk about it more and so on. And despite the fact that death anxiety is high in women, the death positive movement is almost entirely led by women, which I've always found really interesting, that even though women tend to be more scared of death, it's actually women that are leading this movement to kind of break down taboos about death and so on. So it's this kind of interesting juxtaposition, I think, when it comes to sex. Well, I don't know. I mean, do women cross culturally, when I just think about it, I just thought about it then, but do women cross culturally have a different relationship with death and dying and grief than men? Um, My knowledge of that would be fairly limited, but thinking off the top of my head, I guess they do. I guess women typically have more of a role to play when it comes to grieving in terms of traditions about, you know, European traditions of of Mm. women wear black after a death and and those sorts of things. I'm not sure. I think it'd be really interesting to look into that. uh, Culturally, it seems as though it's more acceptable or has been Mm. culture for women to be more expressive in relation to their grief. So I was interested Mm. in reading your review articles and I was interested in the relationship between grief and loss and death anxiety. Yeah, I'm trying to think if we would have even touched on that in any of the papers. I don't think we have. It's not something we've tended to look at. There are people, Robert Neymar, for people who are interested, he specialises in grief and has done a lot of work on that area. It's not something we've looked at, though, I think. Mm. Not that I can think of, yeah. But it would be interesting, I think, to look at do experiences of loss make you more comfortable with the idea of death? Does it make it more normalised? Are you more accepting? Or does it do the opposite? Does it seem to heighten any kind of fears that you might have already had? I wondered whether experiences of death that are negative mm. developmentally 
could actually be and the experience of grief and loss. And I always say to people that grief and loss is a developmental process that once someone dies that you love, that's it, you know, you grieve forever. It's just it changes over time and fluctuates and you think that you're over something. What people talk about being over death, you know, the death of a parent or the worst thing that can happen to you in terms of a stressor is the death of a child. And then you can find that 20 years later, you have a day where you feel like the day it happened. Mm. That's why those Kubler-Ross stages are interesting because there's sort of a circle that flows around and around. Um, you know, acceptance isn't a place where people arrive like a train station. I have spoken to clients who talk about, you know, watching things on TV, uh, you know, even like a royal wedding and then becoming obsessed with the idea and thinking that there might be a terrorist attack. And that seems to be quite intrinsically linked with what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think if you see someone die, for example, in very painful circumstances, that's definitely going to stick with you and shape how you view death. We brought out a book last year that's called Tales from the Valley of Death and it's 10 different cases. So it's 10 different interviews with clients who have dealt with death in one way or another. I mean, this obviously isn't any kind of empirical data or anything like that, but almost all of the individuals in the book who had this sort of crippling fear of death remembered some kind of instance of loss when they were younger, you know, whether that was going to the funeral of a grandparent or a near-death experience themselves, a near-drowning, something, some kind of imagery to do with death when they were quite young. So that's not any kind of rigorous evidence whatsoever, but I think mm. clinically you do tend to see that, that there's some kind of, not always, but often there's some kind of early memory of death that might have played some role at least. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with the psychologist Rachel Menzies. I was interested in your experience from, I think there was a Sydney Morning Herald article that talked about you and your father's work. And there was in relation to the exposure therapy techniques. And it sounded like you, as part of that technique, you watch films of body farms and things like that. So you watch mm -hmm. bodies that are going through different stages after death of rigor mortis, sort of marbling the flesh, and then probably moving into something like putrescence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wonder, you exposed yourself to that. Not many people would choose to do that as a young person. Yeah, I guess not. And when we showed those videos in workshops, that was an optional task for people to watch. That was during afternoon tea, so people could go and treat themselves to a tea or coffee if they'd rather do that than watch decaying corpses. I think, again, I just personally, I've, I've always thought, you know, if, if we know something like that is going to happen, that I don't know what benefit it has to completely pretend that it's otherwise. And I think it's very related to the Buddhist tradition as well of trying to remind ourselves that this is a mortal body that we're in and that this isn't going to last forever. But it's certainly not for everyone. And that sort of task would be a very, very high level exposure task. It's not something you would be recommending for everyone because it is quite a graphic thing to watch. I mean, it's obviously changed over time because that's the mm -hmm. point of exposure therapy. But what was your first experience of being confronted with that? Do you remember? I think uh, I do. Yeah, I remember when I found the video. I think there was almost sort of like a dissociation where you're kind of 
and I think probably most people would have this watching it, where you sort of originally know that what you're seeing is a human, but it looks so unhuman and it looks so alien that it's actually quite hard to really grasp that this was an actual person that was alive once. So it's definitely graphic to watch and made me feel a bit queasy, but I still found myself struggling to really kind of grasp what was going on, I think, in the video. So I think even with myself, there was still that kind of separation with what I was seeing and what I was actually understanding it to be, if that, if that makes sense. Has that changed over time? Do you have a different relationship with it now? With those videos in general or, or death in general? Yeah, yeah that, well, that experience of, of seeing those things. I guess I've kind of habituated to it more, mm. but I think it's still hard to kind of shake that queasiness of actually seeing what happens to a body. So, I th- yeah, I think I'm more comfortable with it now, I'd say, but I still find it really hard when you see a body like that. I still find it really hard to really, really understand that that's what it is. I think probably similar to most people's views on death where you kind of think death happens to other people but yeah. not to me. Like this is something Tolstoy wrote a lot about, you know, that I get that death happens and I get it happens mm. to others but it's really hard to really emotionally believe and understand that, that happens to me as well. And so mm. I think I have a similar thing of it's I'm really kind of having to constantly remind myself that, no, this is real and this is this was a person that was lying here and now they're just, you know, they're just bones and so on. Mm. Well, I was thinking of the experience of going to a funeral And my experience always at funerals, I know that the thought comes into my head of how unlucky the person is who've died because it doesn't Mm. seem like I'll die. You know, it doesn't seem like ever a real thing to me. I know that I'll die, but when I'm there, it's sort of like a suspension of belief for people. And maybe that's a protective mechanism. I mean, maybe that's why we bury the dead. If you go back even to 10,000 years ago, hunter-gatherer, Neanderthal times, you know, these traditions amongst our ancestors of burying the dead, of kind of getting away. There are a few tra- traditions that actually, you know, that are sky burials and that people want to see the corpse decompose, but lots of traditions are around burial and removal of the almost the thing that isn't a human anymore. Mm. Yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah, definitely. And I think... You know, I agree with you that I think it's very hard to really rationally realise that that's going to happen to us as well. It seems so kind of other um, that even, you know, even though this is sort of my bread and butter and I do this work every day, I still find there's that there's that gap between rationally knowing and actually really, really feeling that that's the case. So, I mean, does anybody really escape terror management theory? I mean... It, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's... It's the interesting thing. I mean, I think terror management theory kind of says that you see these effects usually when um, the the thoughts of death are unconscious. So typically you have to kind of wait until 20 minutes after the mortality salience to measure the thing that you're interested in measuring in. Um, I've noticed it even with myself. You'd think I'd be immune to terror management effects by now, but I noticed even with myself with the COVID thing and everything going on, my behaviour can definitely be seen from a terror management lens. You know, I'm... I'm working more, I'm putting a lot, of, a lot of work into being productive, you know, doing academic achievements and so on. That would very much be explained by, you know, the mortality salience going on all around us with the pandemic. So I think I definitely see myself as, you know, just as subject to those effects as anyone else. Mm. Well, I mean, it comes back to, it seems like a lot of the ideas around death anxiety, mortality salience, 
and terror management theory grow out of a few traditions, but the one that it seems to be best related to is existential therapy and those ideas. And for me, it seemed like it was very connected to the ideas of someone like Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, the the psychiatrist who ended up in Auschwitz and said that that the most important thing in people's life is constructing meaning, you know, that you can't continue to live unless you feel as though there's some sort of purpose. I mean, the reason that you do research and write papers, to some extent, that fits within the terror management theory framework because you're looking for some kind of symbolic immortality. Mm -hmm. Some part of me, an idea, lives beyond me after I die. You mentioned meaning. I think meaning... You know, it's very much related to death and fears of death because I think for a lot of people, the problem of death really challenges their sense of meaning or can make it really hard to find a sense of purpose. And I think that the existentialists would talk about that this is something that we all have to face, that clients might be dealing with this problem in their own way or not dealing with it, but it's the therapist has to face the same kind of question as well. You know, it's one of those existential givens that we're in this chaotic world with no inherent structure or meaning and we're kind of desperately trying to find meaning however we can and I think for a lot of people the existence of death makes it really difficult to do that. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with the psychologist Rachel Menzies. Well I think there are a couple of interesting findings that might have been counterintuitive One is older people don't seem to suffer more death anxiety than younger people, even though younger people, because they're further away from it, it should seem less real. So that's surprising. That surprised me. And the other one was there doesn't seem to be much literature to show a correlation between having some sort of religious or spiritual belief and lower death anxiety. Yeah, both of those, you're right, I think surprise people, particularly the age one. And the findings on age are pretty consistent about people towards the end of life, that it seems to be people in the last 10, 20 years of life that are the least anxious about death, which is often, you can see why that's a surprising thing. With religion, it's an interesting relationship where it seems like if you're at either end of the religious spectrum, you're on pretty good ground with death anxiety, I guess. If you're a really firm believer, you tend to have lower death anxiety. But if you're a really firm atheist, you also tend to have lower death anxiety. And it seems like it's those people in the middle who might be, you know, agnostic or not really believing in their faith. Those tend to be the people who have higher death anxiety, which makes sense, I guess, from a terror management perspective, that if you're really, really believing your cultural worldview, whether that's atheism or Christianity or Islam or whatever it is, that seems to be a defence for you. Whereas if you're less wedded to your cultural worldviews or your religious worldviews, that seems to leave you more vulnerable to fears of death. Mm. Well, it also, I mean, terror management theory seeks to explain from a a causal perspective things like ethno-nationalism and jihadism, that this is around dealing with the idea of your mortality and seeking some sort of meaning through a cultural structure and that often has for human beings no i shouldn't say that there's lots of positive things that people do in groups you know that's that's how we form society but there's lots of negative things about that obviously the way that cultures buying into that cultural worldview sometimes yeah definitely i mean there have been studies you know terror management studies that show that mortality salience 
increases people's support for things like martyrdom, for instance. So, you know, we, we definitely see kind of negative effects of those reminders of death as well. The other interesting thing or the thing that I found interesting was that it showed that higher education and higher socioeconomic status was moderately associated with lower death anxiety, which interested me because I remember I used to have supervision with a clinical psychologist who worked in palliative care and in oncology wards and worked with people, had worked a long time. He was interested in people who were dying. He's passed away now. But he said that he found the greatest levels of anxiety towards death amongst the people who had often had the best lives, the the higher socioeconomic people and people who had really difficult lives, he found them to be more accepting. And Mm. I sort of understood this anecdotally in terms of control. So he talked about often about people who would get the diagnosis, the terminal cancer diagnosis, And they would continuously, you know, they would go back and look for a second opinion and look for another diagnosis. And they had a a great deal of trouble accepting it because if your life has kind of worked out most of the way and you've pretty much got what you want, it's really surprising at the end when you realise that you never had control in the first place. He would talk about it being a perceptual thing. And I wondered how much of death anxiety was just around control was was more around life and control yeah i think that's really interesting it's a really interesting thing he noticed i mean yeah i'm sure control plays a really big part of it i mean death is one of those things that is so often entirely out of our control even though we might be desperately trying to prevent it at all costs yeah it's it's interesting i wouldn't be surprised if it's that control that plays a big part in what we see in Although, like you said, the the research would tell us it should be the other way around, that those who are more educated should be those who are less anxious about it. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's interesting. Well, it's only anecdotal. I suppose it, it made sense to me. And then when I read the research, I mean, I can understand that it really depends, doesn't it? I mean, it's moderately associated, moderately correlation. A correlation is a correlation. It's not causation. But mm. you can understand that if you've you know, you've been educated, you've, you might have achieved a lot of things in your life that you wanted to achieve, that you've got good relationships, mm. then maybe you can be more accepting of death. And maybe it's actually not about socioeconomic status. It's really just about quality of life. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it that way. I think that makes sense. I sort of conceptualized it just now off the top of my head as, you know, education might kind of equip you with more tools to kind of work with anxiety or it might teach you better ways to kind of handle your thinking or something along those lines. But I think that makes a lot of sense as well in the context of fears of death that someone who has higher education might have better self-esteem or better confidence in their achievements, for example, if they've kind of ticked off the box of the things they've wanted to do in life. Mm. Well, I think about billionaires, I think about like the creators of Google. I don't think they want to die. I think they invest, I can't remember the, their names at the moment, but they invest a lot of money into research, which, you know, looks at extending the life of nematodes, you know, so we can extend the life of worms to three or four times the lifespan that they would experience naturally. But that would create a great divide within humanity if you could essentially cure death. Because throughout all of human history, the one thing that poor people have, the great equaliser, is that even the king dies the same as me. But if we ended up curing death to some extent and people could live Mm. inordinately long lives, 
then that would create the greatest inequality that we've ever seen. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you see things like cryogenics are very popular in the States, but I can't remember how much it costs to put yourself down for that. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. But, you know, you're right. We're going to see that does happen. It's going to be a very select group of people that are living that long. Personally, I don't think I'd, that sounds horrible. I'd hate to live to 200 or something. I think I'd be begging for death at that point, personally. There's a downside with the animal models in that if you can extend the life of a mouse or a worm by a factor of three or four times, that worm, its adolescence will look something like, if you did it with a human, their adolescence would be something like the energy and vitality of a 50-year-old. And also your, uh, your fertility would drop and all that sort of thing. Because if you live an inordinately long life, it's not as important for you to have offspring because your genes just persist longer. Yeah, I'm not liking the sound of that, I'll tell you. Well, <laughs> it no. makes me think, yeah, there's a, um, a great Greek myth about a goddess who falls in love with a mortal and she asks Zeus, she begs Zeus, you know, can you please make him live forever? And so Zeus grants her wish, but she forgets to ask for eternal youth. And so she's stuck with this man who gets older and older and more and more derelict and is basically falling apart. And in the end, he begs for death because he doesn't want to keep living like that. I feel like that would be me if I had to take that drug or do whatever that treatment is. You're listening to The Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with the psychologist Rachel Menzies. Well, I wondered if, like, it comes back once again to meaning. So in the Mm. research that looks at cancer patients, cancer patients who suffer major depression have much higher levels of death anxiety than terminal cancer patients who aren't depressed or it's probably quite normal to be depressed if you've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And maybe the major depression had been experienced over their life to some extent. So maybe it's always that kind of lack of sense of purpose and self and identity and meaning that actually makes something like death, which is, you know, it's, it's probably normal to find it a little frightening, that makes it intolerable. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why, so we know exposure is the most effective way of reducing death anxiety, but I think it's, it's not the be all and end all, that if you take away someone's fear, they still need that drive for meaning. So things that are going to help people figure out what their values are, what is going to make their life purposeful, those things are a really important thing to consider in therapy above and beyond just reducing someone's fear. Also, I like some of the therapeutic techniques. Uh, I just learned about Marita. Uh, the Japanese CBT. I know that name. I can't it, remember. It's in one of your papers. It's. Uh, oh, yeah, that's why I should know it. <laughs> You'll uh, have to remind me. <laughs> they're very similar to acceptance and commitment therapy. So I'd wondered if you'd planned your own funeral and written your own eulogy. I haven't written my own eulogy. I probably have a bit of a deluded belief that I, well, that I won't ever have to do it, but that hopefully my funeral isn't anytime soon, which Mm. I shouldn't be having that attitude given Mm. what I preach to everyone else. I've planned my own funeral informally as in I've thought about it. I used to have an app on my phone where you could record your funeral preferences and things on that. But I need to do a bit more of that, to be honest, I think. I haven't written my own obituary yet. I've written my own tombstone inscription. Yeah. What does it say? Oh, that's too embarrassing. I can't. You'll have to wait till I'm dead and <laughs> then you'll see. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Stay oh, tuned. <laughs> uh, 
at different points in my life had a morbid fascination with my own demise I had thought mm-hmm. of like my funeral and the music and I'm sure it would be something I'd choose something some sort of adagio in G minor that's uh, cheesy uh, mm-hmm. organ music or something like that I like yeah. it <laughs> and I, I'd like, I suppose I'd like to end on what your I think your father sort of holds the same view as Richard Dawkins and I was wondering whether you could talk about that yeah absolutely so Richard Dawkins has this in the the first page of Unweaving the Rainbow has this fantastic paragraph, if anyone wanted to look it up, which is essentially pointing out how unlikely it is that we're here, that statistically many, many, many other people could have been here in our place because the likelihood of our own unique DNA sequence ever coming into being was astronomically small. And Richard Dawkins uses the words, you've won the genetic lottery, like you've won the golden ticket of the chocolate factory with even being on this earth in the first place. And that I think is definitely something that I try and remember every day, that someone was going to be here in my place when my mum and dad reproduced, but it didn't have to be me. And I think I feel phenomenally lucky to be here. I mean, even today, my partner commented on how bad the weather is today. It's been raining and storming all day. And I said something ridiculously cheesy like, you know what, every day is a good day, that we're alive here on earth together, something sort of very cliched and embarrassing like that. But I think Richard Dawkins' quote, it's something that a lot of us take for granted. We just assume that we were always going to be here on earth when, of course, we weren't. It could have been many, many other people here instead of us. And we're very lucky to be here. Mm. Yeah, well, I know when I read that after reading the review article about anxiety and about death, that uh, reminded me of why cognitive restructuring is sometimes helpful, is that when I read that paragraph, I went, oh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. And after thinking about all of this death anxiety and this terror, existential terror, I felt a little bit better. But then I thought, well, all those people that never existed never knew that they never existed, so it made no difference to them anyway. Um, No, that's true. Maybe they were better off. I I think about what Christopher Hitchens said when he was diagnosed with cancer. He said the hardest thing about leaving the party is knowing the party's going on without you. Yeah, I think that's a great quote. I'm a big fan of Christopher Hitchens as well. But I think you're right. I think a lot of us don't think of it that way. And I think that's the kind of flip side of it, that it's not just about helping people be less scared of death, but it's also actually trying to help people appreciate life, I guess, and appreciate that, you know, death is a pretty good outcome when we actually get to have this amazing thing that we call life here on earth. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed chatting about all of this. So that was it, the interview that Mark Halloran conducted with Rachel Menzies. Mark, I was interested in, she doesn't really say it in the interview, Mm. it's actually in the Sydney Morning Herald article, and she reminds us that all humans have an inherent drive to survive, but we're also probably the only species that knows that death is inevitable. We have a universal awareness of mortality which exists on a spectrum. She says, and that's at the heart of this whole thing, isn't it, really, that humans are the animal that knows that their death is inevitable. Yeah, 
Although, as you live your life, you can't live your life with that idea seeming too real, I think, which is coming out of the interview. I mean, she talked about that. Someone who exposes herself through, you know, a form of exposure therapy with corpse meditations and watching films of decomposing bodies, she readily admits that still the idea is not exactly real. One of the things that you do say, or that Rachel says, and you seem to agree with, that our society, by pushing death aside, you know, you talk about these big cemeteries now that are sort of out of sight, out of mind, and people don't have that close connection to death anymore, that we're somehow missing something. There's something missing. What are we missing? She seems to think that aliveness to some extent comes from the idea that you're reminded of your death daily. How do you measure whether somebody is more alive because they're closer to death? I think the very interesting part about this research that I found interesting when I first encountered it was that it has a bit of the Freudian and the Jungian underneath it. And there's a lot of philosophy from these existential ideas that essentially underpin this, you know, that when they do these studies, the people aren't consciously aware that they're being triggered around ideas or images of death, but their anxiety and, and their behavioural responses play out because of that. And I think that was quite interesting. One of the simplest ways to distinguish a disorder is to look at whether it impairs your daily functioning, and that will mm. be with, with anything, whether it's something more psychological or if it's a substance use disorder, you know, anything, alcohol. Uh, How much does it impair your relationships with other people? How much does it impair your ability to just function in your life? Does it interfere with vocational, educational opportunities? And so when you're talking about disorders like sociophobia, agoraphobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, people's functioning is often significantly impaired. And if that is related to a fear of death, then exposing someone to that and that improving their functioning is the purpose. All right, next week, Mark. Uh, well, I think it's probably Benjamin Gilmore. Oh, yes, because that's appropriate. Revisiting Benjamin Gilmore. Benjamin Gilmore is a paramedic slash director who has directed a few films to international acclaim, um, Son of a Lion and Jirger, which is set in Kandahar region in Afghanistan. And we did an interview with him in relation to the, the film Jirger and his experiences of shooting the film in, in Afghanistan and, uh, and evading the, the Taliban. But he's also an author of books like uh, Paramedico, Around the World by Ambulance. Mm-hmm. And your interview was really coinciding with the release of his latest book, The Gap. Yes, he and I had spoken about doing an interview about The Gap, which is a sort of notorious place where people take their lives in Sydney and which he went through a particularly terrible summer in 2010, 2011, where there are lots of suicides. And we'd initially set up that interview, but then COVID-19 struck. And then he had sent out an email uh, to people on his email list about his experiences with COVID-19. And so I thought it'd be a good time for us to reactivate that interview and talk about the gap and talk about his experiences with COVID as a paramedic. When Dr. Mark Halloran interviews Benjamin Gilmore. 
And Mark, we should really give our Lifeline's number again before we go. Lifeline Australia, 13 11 14 for crisis support and suicide prevention. See you all next week. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.